Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues of the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Yes, indeed. Welcome back to What on Earth. I'm James Scotland, the General Manager of Supply Chain Resilience for the Australian Industry Group. And thank you for joining us to discuss all things facing business owners and operators as Australia transitions to the post-carbon, net zero carbon emissions future. Today, we're going to look at some of the issues and structures around the enabling infrastructure for the transition. There is increasing concern in some areas that the uh, regarding the pace of change uh, and regarding the pace of installing the necessary infrastructure. There's also a lot uh, of things in place that people are not aware of. It's sort of like a complex issue. So our chat today is going to pick up many of the issues we highlighted last month with the idea of going a bit deeper on some of those issues. So I'm excited about today. We're going to, we're going to get into some crunchy, crunchy, deep thought. Uh, but I'm also a little sad. The good news is that Tenet Reid is with me as always. Tenet is the head of Energy and Environment. Uh, for the Australian Industry Group, and he's a respected international voice on these issues. And of course, he's one of our usual three amigos. Hello, Tenet. How are you? G'day, James. I'm pretty good. Uh, I have had a horrible cold recently, but I think that I'm like 95% recovered. Uh, so I am energised for today's discussion. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, that's um, exciting and frightening news for, for us for the next hour. <laughs> um, <laughs> I should quote that horrible cliche and say, Houston, we have a problem because I'm a bit sad, Tenant. Our third yeah. editor, Paul Hodson, the principal consultant of Paul Hodson Advisory and well-known business and industry commentator, is unable to join us today. Paul's on a well-earned break. He's, uh, I think, on the day that we're recording this, I think he's in Scotland with his family hunting for Nessie for the Loch Ness Monster uh, at Loch Ness. I wonder how long he'll stay there looking. Yeah. Or summer. Lucky for some. <laughs> bit of bit of cryptozoology sounds like a great holiday to me, but uh, uh, I won't get the chance to find out. Won't you? You're going to have to keep working, are you? Uh, I- Look, I've just come back from holidays, so if you want to spend the next uh, you know, time talking about my holidays, I'm more than happy to do that. I think let's focus on the transition and I will bottle up my feelings of envy and resentment. Oh, it's such a big world, isn't it? And there's so much going on. Uh, let's talk about infrastructure and the transition. One of the parts of the transition that people don't see is the, the duck paddling rapidly below the water, all the hard work that's going on to understand the issues and to guide our key sectors in what needs to be done. Uh, and you're involved in those lot of issues that no one knows about, but there's a lot going on. You mentioned last month that you are in on the panel, I think, for the independent advice yep. on the Victorian government's plan for 2035 emissions targets. I probably bundled that, uh, bungled that, but tell me about what that is and, and, and what, the, what was that like? Yeah, well, so Victoria has a Climate Change Act that, among other things, requires the government to get independent advice every five years on what its next set of five-year emissions reduction targets should be. Uh, and it's quite, a, it's quite a demanding schedule of, uh, of advice and decision and measurement of progress and more advice, more decisions. So uh, I was on the panel uh, for the latest round of advice, uh, and this is in my personal capacity. I was, I was there as tenant read climate guy uh, rather than as... AI group, uh, but uh, that panel was chaired by uh, climate lawyer and and uh, maker of uh, of deals, uh, Martin Wilder, and uh, I was uh, working alongside Emma Heard uh, of uh, previously of the investor group on climate change and uh, and now of uh, EY, and uh, so. There were some big issues to consider uh, because Victoria's 2030 target, uh, advised on by the previous panel that Greg Combay chaired, who's now uh, running the uh, National Net Zero Authority that's recently been established, that uh, process had wound up with a 45 to 50% emissions reduction target for 2030. And of course, that's a, that's a big challenging number, but also a long way short of the kinds of numbers that are consistent with 
a global outcome of one and a half degrees. And this is this is the constant challenge in dealing with climate policy, climate targets. What we can sort of think of bottom up as what could we do in this sector? What can we do in that business? Uh, you know, we see a lot of practical challenges and limiters. But then when we look top down at what is what are the kinds of numbers that are um, consistent with the science of climate change, uh, we get much, much bigger uh, numbers than those that um, we can easily see immediately doing in industry, in households, uh, in transport, f- looking from the bottom up. And when you start looking a bit further ahead to 2035, which, you know, in some ways, this is this is new territory. Victoria is the first jurisdiction to adopt in, in Australia to adopt a 2035 goal, but it's also it's only 12 years away, which is not actually very far in terms of business investment cycles. Uh, you start to come up with much bigger numbers. So our process, in the end, recommended a target of an. 80% reduction of 2005 levels by 2035. And the government accepted uh, a, or made a decision to adopt a 75 to 80% reduction target. So they, they largely took the advice. Those are... That's uh, still a big target though, isn't it? it? Oh my God, yes. Th- those are big numbers. Mm. Um, and hey, you know, I... I was on the panel. Um, I supported the recommendations, um, but I think uh, we recognise that these are going to be challenging to achieve. And it, it raises some questions, including what is the purpose of a target? Yeah, there have been targets that governments have adopted in the past, and I, I won't throw anybody under the bus here, but it has not been unknown for governments to adopt targets that were basically tying a ribbon around what they expected to happen anyway. And uh, they thought that they could just take a victory lap once what was going to happen anyway did uh, and and have a target that didn't really require doing anything different to achieve. This is not a target like that. Uh, This is a target that will stretch the Victorian government, Victorian industry, Victorian households, farmers, land managers, everybody uh, will need to make significant changes from today's investments and practices if that target is going to be approached. Uh, We've had uh, a big focus on uh, in Victoria and elsewhere on the electricity sector, uh, decarbonising generation. It's very important. Uh, The the 80% target cannot be met without the retirement of the existing coal-fired power stations in Victoria, but that will be far from enough to achieve it. And so in gas use, natural gas use is going to have to decline very substantially in uh, Victoria. Uh, That's a far from straightforward thing. Transport, uh, adoption of uh, battery electric vehicles and uh, higher efficiency vehicles more broadly will have to go forward a long way. The uh, agricultural sector will have to start deploying methane-reducing interventions, feed supplements and so forth uh, in the, the state uh, the state's livestock herds, uh, land management, uh, more land will have to be forested. Uh, these things are, uh, they're not exactly easy, but they are fairly well understood. Uh, what aggressive action on those things gets you is the time and the space to deal with the really hard to abate parts of the Victorian economy, which is very heavy and long-distance transport, uh, high-grade industrial heat, uh, the uh, free uh, the, the um, parts of the livestock herd that are uh, grazed on rangelands. Uh, these are things that are, are much more difficult, are going to take longer, 
uh, to decarbonize based at least on the the technologies we can see now uh, and so the 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 more room we have left in the carbon budget, the longer we can take to solve those things. So I guess one big idea in the process is make that room by pushing harder on the things that you know broadly how to do now. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good approach to any challenge, isn't it? To, to identify what are the early wins and then worry about the bigger challenges later on. But those early wins are still yeah. going to come at a... Uh, at a battle. It's going to be uh, tough to get to all of them. Those, one, those ideas that you mentioned are all tough, tough questions. And, you know, we keep talking about gas in Victoria. We'll come back to that and do a whole episode on how big that challenge is. But this transport, agriculture, it's all big challenges, isn't it? They are, they are. Now, there is some uh, good reason for a bit of optimism. Um, in in these spaces, because I'm all some of the key technologies, uh, some of the key technologies that we uh, expect to be large parts of our solutions, uh, wind and solar, batteries, electrolyzers, they have a very important characteristic, which is a fairly high learning rate. The more of them that get built, the cheaper the next one to get built becomes uh, through a thousand little improvements that companies make when they learn by doing. Uh, And the power of those learning rates combined with aggressive deployment of those technologies in Australia, in Victoria, and even more importantly, around the world uh, is going to deliver much faster reductions in the cost of building everything that we need to build than many modelling exercises and projections five or 10 or 20 years ago anticipated. Uh, so we, we will be, for many of these problems, pushing on an open door, but... We shouldn't underestimate the logistical challenges involved in, like, um, on the gas front. Uh, Victoria's got two and a half million gas-connected households. Uh, if those households by 2035, 38, 40 were going to either fully electrify or be fully converted to 100% hydrogen, that's a huge program of upgrades, of appliance replacements, of upgrades to the supporting infrastructure uh, around them. Let's come back to that one and talk about it at a different stage. But I, I see, I get your point about yeah. it is, there's a lot of households to be changed over in a short period of time. Can I just pick up that point you were saying before about you know bottom-up, top-down type approaches to targets? To me, it seems, and uh, Tia Kansara mentioned this on an episode uh, a long time ago, we're facing an existential threat. And there was a movie recently called Don't Look Up, which basically said, there's, I think, if I remember correctly, there's a, there's a, there's a meteor coming to Earth and it's going to wipe us out. And people were saying, yeah, well, yep. maybe, but I've got a meeting with the bank today and it's more important. And, and you know, this doesn't suit my, my message, so I want to ignore it. What we've got here is an existential threat. And, and as business people, we don't necessarily understand what that is because we always choose the challenges of our choosing. <laughs> we, we have a look around, mm. see what the opportunities are, and we go after moving those high challenge. But with something like climate change, no matter, that's going to happen. What we've got to do is try and minimise it and take, take the steps. Is that the way that you understand the, the issue, why it's difficult for us to get our head around targets? So, I, or am I, being too esoteric, am I being too esoteric there? It's an existential threat and we need to figure out how best to manage it as opposed to whether or not what, what we should do, what we're going to do, have we, have we got the money for it? So climate change is a, uh, it's a, it's a very immense challenge and there's a lot of, uh, of, of risks and costs and uh, dangers to try and internalise, but it's not the only driver of the, the transition that we're, um, or the multiple transitions that we've got going on. Okay. Uh, the economics of energy are changing dramatically. 
the economics of many uh, industries are being transformed by uh, the shifts in uh, the, the the cost and performance of uh, of batteries of wind and solar. We will see how transformative hydrogen turns out to be. I think there's a uh, a much bigger cost gap between uh, hydrogen and things that hydrogen competes with at the moment. So that adoption is is going to be very heavily driven by policy. Uh, on climate and and uh, on supporting transition, rather than the underlying economics for some time to come. Uh, but you know when uh, when the smart money is in many industries is shifting, uh, that's a lot of wind in the sails of uh, a response to climate. And I think we see in the United States where politically. Climate change as climate change is a like it's a very polarized issue. It's one where uh, people on the the conservative side of politics are generally somewhere between uncomfortable talking about it and hostile to action on it. Uh, but we also see that the fastest rollout of renewable energy is happening in Texas. Uh, we see that the factories to build EVs and batteries and uh, many of the other components and um, capital equipment that's required are being built in red states, uh, in, in conservative-leaning states, uh, where the um, Republican-dominated governments are, are very happy to uh, accept uh, these jobs and the um, the transformations that go with them, uh, because it's it's not in their view just about the culture wars or about uh, the the highly polarized climate issue. So, you know, uh, it is a challenge to uh, to get a, a fully adequate response to um, to climate change, but. Uh, it's it's easier than it used to seem. Well, that brings us as a, a great segue into the next issue I wanted to ask you about, which is some work you've been doing on the uh, strangely named Inflation Reduction Act from the United States. Uh, the way that uh, the current uh, government in the United States is looking at climate change is to see it as a way to quote to reindustrialize. Well, whilst yeah. transitioning, they're seeing the transition to a new energy uh, environment as being a way in which to, you know, to to mix presidential presidential campaigns that, as a way to to make America great again. <laughs> um, uh, you've been doing a bit of work. The, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, identified clearly that America couldn't do this all on their own if they wanted to reindustrialize. They needed assistance. And they said, we've got some friends who might be able to help us. And Australia was one of those friends. That gives us opportunities, but there's challenges as well, obviously. Do you want to just talk about that for a while? Yeah. Where, where are we at in the inflation reduction? What's the issue and, and where are we at? Sure. So the Inflation Reduction Act, or I'm going to call it IRA. Uh, some people don't like to talk about the IRA in a positive light. Uh, IRA is a gigantic bit of US legislation. At the time of passage, it was estimated that the climate and energy bits of it were worth something like 370 billion US dollars. Yeah, so that's getting towards reasonably good dollars, isn't it? 370 billion. Enough, enough money to be interesting. Uh, but that actually could be an underestimate. Uh, because most of the spending in IRA is uh, not here's five billion for this, ten billion for that. Most of it is tax credits for uh, installing or, or operating renewable energy, for producing clean hydrogen, for doing carbon capture and storage. And the amount that winds winds up being spent is going to depend on the amount of that stuff that winds up getting done. Uh, and when the top rate of subsidy for clean hydrogen is three US dollars per kilo, 
uh, we might wind up seeing a lot of these things be done. Uh, the public spending component of this could be much larger than 370 billion US dollars. So when an economy like the US moves as hard and fast as this, it does have impacts across the world. And for Australia, there's a couple of categories of impact that we should have in mind. So one is the direct opportunities that are created. Uh, if we can be a preferred supplier of critical minerals to go into the auto and non-auto batteries that IRA is encouraging greater production of, then we have uh, uh, a lot to directly gain. And the recent compact that the Australian and US governments uh, started, I, I wouldn't say it's a fully fledged, it's a political agreement at this stage, not a, not a treaty, uh, but there's more detail being worked through. That appears to involve Australia being, uh, among other things, uh, qualified not just for IRA subsidies, but as a um, as a national security trustworthy jurisdiction for the use of the Defence Production Act in the US to uh, channel public uh, resources and, uh, and and private resources to get stuff done for the national security of the US. It looks like. Uh, Critical minerals for batteries are part of the US view of national security these days. And so, of course, with all the demand globally for, uh, for lithium, for copper, for nickel, for much more, of course, Australia was always going to produce more of those things and, uh, and benefit. But the IRA connection raises the likelihood that we will wind up being able to do more onshore processing and value adding uh, because of the combination of nerves, especially in America, but much more broadly than that, nerves about the dominant position that China currently has in the uh, processing and provision of those critical minerals and the availability of uh, American capital and American subsidies uh, to uh, speed the development of alternate processing capacity, so that side of things looks like a good win. But that makes sense. That, that makes sense, though, doesn't it? Because they are critical minerals. They're critical to what we're trying to achieve. And if the minerals are in Mongolia or China or somewhere, that's a, that's a problem for U.S. defense. I, I can see why they're nervous about that. Yeah, uh, I, I think I think that these vulnerabilities are of a different order to those associated with the hydrocarbon economy. Like the oil shocks of the 1970s involved immediate risks to uh, Western economies of grinding to a halt uh, and immediate lifts in the cost of living and of everything because the taps got turned off or turned down or the tankers got diverted. Now, if we think about the impact that uh, a similar effort to constrain the, the flow of solar panels or of lithium batteries or of neodymium for magnets or whatever else, those things are a bit more upstream. Uh, they are about uh, the, the flow of new long service kit. Uh, and so the I personally wonder whether somebody who tried to uh, wield the lithium weapon and bring uh, disfavoured economies to their knees by denying them lithium, I just personally wonder whether that would work particularly well. You'd have to keep it up for quite a while before uh, a, an economy was um, really dramatically affected in a way comparable to an oil embargo. Um, but I don't know. I, it's probably best that we never find out. And so having uh, that diversity seems like a good idea, even if it comes at a bit of a, a sticker price cost. Sure. The, the, uh, there's much more to, the, uh, to IRA than just uh, uh, critical minerals and batteries and whatever. But I am interested in what you're saying there because 
Uh, I saw recently that Queensland government has a uh, has a, a new industry development strategy, <clears throat> which says that the Queensland government is committed to bringing its formidable industry development levers to bear on seizing the industry opportunities that come with renewable energy, high value battery manufacturing, critical minerals, biofuels, hydrogen, and material recycling. It says by decarbonising Queensland electricity network, we ensure the input costs to industries are lower and that our energy sources meet requirements of increasing ESG-conscious investors and consumers. So all that's very good around Queensland, but then a week or so later, they announced a $100 million critical minerals and battery technology fund to position Queensland to meet the growing global need for energy, uh, clean energy technology. I don't think Queensland's the only one that's chasing this, are they? I mean, WA is looking at the same thing. SA, I think, is doing something similar. Yes. Uh, are we responding to the to uh, IRA or are we still trying to figure out what it means? Uh, are those two things I just mentioned connected? Just, just expand on that a bit more if you can. Yeah. Well, so, so far, Australia's response is, is relatively small. Uh, so, of course, Australia is a much smaller economy than the United States, uh, but a, a lot of our peers have looked at IRA and decided that they need to do something uh, of comparable scale to respond because- I think our colleagues, Canada came out of the, out of the blocks pretty fast. Didn't yeah. They? Well, so Canada's got a $60 billion Canadian dollar uh, package that is aimed at growing uh, their clean industries. Uh, and these responses are- they are partially about matching the, uh, the I guess, um, pooling effort to achieve the global emissions outcomes and, and national emissions goals that are sought. But they're also about ensuring that the US isn't the only place where uh, investment in the future hydrogen sector goes that the US is not the only place where investment in big uh, battery uh, battery gigafactories goes. Uh, there's there's plenty of economies that that uh, think that they have good prospects in these industries and don't want uh, to be shut out of the the ground floor of their growth. Now, what opportunities Australia has is going to be a a different mix than those that the US or Canada or Europe has. We're a different economy. We're in a different place. We have different markets that we serve. Um, but it is worth thinking about what our equivalent might be. Now, that includes what are the opportunities? How big should any effort to secure those opportunities or pursue them be? And then by what means would we do so? The US has got all these tax credits. Tax credits are not something that we have had as um, much an emphasis on in Australian policymaking. There's lots of other things that could be done. Contracts for difference uh, for clean metals or clean hydrogen. The federal government's hydrogen Head Start program, uh, which at two billion dollars, it pains me to say, is a toe in the water. I, I never thought I'd be back when I was doing budgets fifteen years ago. Uh, I uh, I would have been horrified at the idea that two billion dollars was a was a tiny modest toe in the water uh, on on anything, but it kind of is. Uh, that program looks like it will turn into a contracts for difference uh, process that uh, guarantees uh, that um, the hydrogen projects that, that qualify will achieve a minimum sales price for the hydrogen that they produce. Uh, and, and that will underpin uh, maybe a gigawatt of electrolysis capacity, uh, maybe uh, a million tonnes of hydrogen um, production over uh, 15 years. Uh, that's the kind of thing that Australia might consider more of, um, but we have to decide like how, how big do we want to go uh, because we, we won't outspend the US Treasury, that's for sure. 
But what do we need to do to be on the map for sectors where we have reason to think we'll have a long-term advantage? Once advantage rather than the availability of money vomiting subsidies is the main thing that matters for where these industries go. Well, how do, how do business people find out more about this? I, I mean, I, I gather from what you're saying that is there multiple opportunities with the uh, with industrial in the Inflation Reduction Act with the US, but also other opportunities around the around the world. How do I, as a business person, get my head around this? Well, uh, there's a. a I won't even say cottage industry. There's a a large advisory industry in the United States uh, directed at helping uh, businesses to uh, understand and access and and put together maximization uh, projects to uh, make the most of the IRA subsidies. And the, the, the big four, or is it going to be three, uh, locally, um, advisory firms uh, and many others will have advice on those things here as well. The Australian government, I think, is doing its best to uh, to connect Australian businesses with US opportunity, and uh, I think watch watch for more announcements out of the federal government over the next uh, six months or so because they have got a. Um, a couple of close collaborations uh, between our um, energy minister and the US Energy Secretary, our resources minister and the US National Security Council on building up uh, these connections for so that Australian uh, businesses can um, make a buck while helping meet uh, US economic and security needs. I think, this, I think that's really good advice. Uh, I, I think uh, many Australians, including many Australian businessmen, are confused and laugh at the uh, shenanigans that go on with the American politics. But there is still great opportunities there for business people, uh, and this uh, and IRA just puts it front and centre. Yeah, I mean, for the next ten years, uh, there are there are big dollars guaranteed to people who do the stuff that uh, IRA supports. Um, American politics is a messy thing, uh, but every now and again they uh, get themselves together to agree something and lock it in. And I don't think that IRA is... like uh, the, the IRA subsidies are temporary, but it's 10 years. They're, they're very unlikely to be reversed. There's just not much... Uh, appetite uh, to really uh, push back on the the bulk of it. This, this is a bit of rhetoric and signalling, but uh, it's it's a lot of money. Now, if Australia well, does, well, as, as you say, the, the the proof of the pudding is that despite what all the rhetoric is, Texas is still fast becoming a renewable energy centre. It is, it is, and you know there are there are complexities to that. Uh, there is pushback within Texas uh, on land use, on uh, permitting for uh, more um, more infrastructure to to support all that. But uh, yes, Texan renewable energy has grown faster than Californian renewable energy in recent years, uh, which. Uh, is is not the stereotype. So, uh, so everyone listening, pay attention to what's really going on, rather than just all the all the hot air that <laughs> that we hear a lot of. There's there's things exciting things happening in the uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act and other parts of the American economy. Let's come back to Australia. One of the things that Australia has to do is hit a net zero carbon. Uh, target by 2050. I heard you say earlier in this podcast that there is now, and I didn't know this, there's a new National Net Zero Authority. Is that a business-focused authority or what's what's that about? So the Net Zero Authority is a body that's got a couple of very big jobs. The core part of it is uh, advice and coordination of, uh, of of programs and um, and efforts on the the transition of those communities and workers and 
regional businesses most affected by the upcoming closures of a lot of coal-fired power stations around the country. So they have a particular focus on the Latrobe Valley, on the Hunter, on the Gladstone region, uh, and on Collie in WA. But they're also uh, going to be relevant over time to the, the same challenges of shrinking activity, shrinking markets uh, that will start to affect the export sector for uh, coal and ultimately for gas. And then the third thing that the Net Zero Authority is going to be um, getting its uh, its nose into is the... Uh, the growth and opportunity side of that equation and trying to connect that as much as possible to those regions that face risks and painful transitions. So how much of uh, hydrogen industry opportunity uh, can be realised in regions that are going to lose coal-fired power station jobs? Uh, How much uh, capacity is there for regional manufacturing of componentry uh, to go into the vast renewables projects that are springing and and will uh, multiply much further around the country? It's a big set of jobs and there's going to be a a, a piece of legislation uh, next year that uh, empowers uh, this body and, and, and undergirds it, but it's they're starting with a very strong board uh, of, uh, of experts uh, and uh, an eminent people chaired by Greg Combay, uh, but uh, also with uh, like BHP is on there, Rio Tinto is on there, the ACTU uh, is on there and the, the Mining and Energy Union as well. Uh, and it's uh, – oh, and Roscano is is on there. So it's – uh, uh, Who pops up everywhere, doesn't, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. He does. <laughs> and, of course, Gano has his eyes on the – uh, the mega growth story of uh, what is possible – not guaranteed, but plausible and possible uh, for Australia in uh, a future uh, where we do much of the world's uh, energy-intensive manufacturing, uh, particularly of green iron, uh, because of the the underlying advantages that he thinks and others think also we have in a world pursuing net zero emissions. So I, I think... This body is, you know, you never know when a new body gets set up, whether it's going to be a talking shop or uh, a a very active uh, transformative agent. Uh, I think the Net Zero Authority has got a decent chance of being a big deal and uh, Combay uh, leaving the the world of um, super super fund management for uh, the world of uh, the Net Zero Authority is a is a decent sign that um, it's going to be about the doing, uh, not about the yacking. Well, I'm excited to hear that because this podcast uh, has always been based on the, the growth and the opportunities that are coming through the transition. And the more we hear about that, the, the better. And it's been great to chat about it all this episode. There is clearly opportunities starting to emerge uh, but as you started at the beginning of the, the podcast, there's also some bit of pain and a, and a challenge ahead. One of the challenges, uh, get excited, Tenant, one of the challenges is uh, to the changing economy is uh, a concept called carbon leakage. I think you've heard about yeah. I think you've heard about this. I have. So carbon leakage potentially has, an, has, a, has it needs to be part of the Australian conversation. Which, yep. This is very much a, a, a business-based issue. So let's talk about that for a little while. Tell me about carbon leakage. What is it and uh, what are we doing about it? Okay. So the classic fear of carbon leakage is that 
if one country slaps a carbon price on its steel makers, its cement makers, its uh, aluminium producers, and other countries don't, that industries are going to flee country A uh, and go overseas and they will either emit the same carbon overseas as they would have in the original country or maybe even more uh, if they're going to uh, poorly regulated, uh, lax jurisdictions. So, so the first thing we need to know is that whenever you hear about carbon leakage, this is not a physical thing, it's an economic term, is that? Yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, now, of course, uh, some people don't think that this is as big a problem as uh, as, as we in industry have long seen it to be. Uh, there are some people who say, uh, no, country, uh, companies are not going to up stakes uh, and, and leave just over a, a, a bit of a change in the cost of one of the things uh, that is an input to, to their business. But when you're talking about transformative carbon prices, like very substantial prices, whether that's actually through an explicit price or through tight regulation, uh, and you're talking about industries that are currently very high emissions, it actually is a big enough deal that a a business might uh, either literally leave or find itself uncompetitive versus its international peers and reduce production or shut down because of the cost differentials involved. So how do you deal with that fear? There have been- How do you deal with that? Yeah, well, um, the, the most popular approach in the world to date has been to deal with that fear by not having a climate policy at all. Uh, or or excluding uh, heavy industry from that policy. That's not a very good approach, and it's not one that's going to get us to either the emissions goals or the clean economy goals that we've got. Uh, But then, so once you do start extending policy, what can you do? Well, you can try an all carrots, no sticks approach, uh, there's going to be money for um, everybody uh, in industry to um, invest in whatever's required, and that's the Inflation Reduction Act approach. Um, that can, if you've got the money, uh, if if the government can spend it or borrow it, uh, then that can work. In that can be very helpful. You can't keep that going forever. The US is not going to forever pay a public bounty to cover the cost differential between green steel and high emission steel. Uh, At some point, um, sticks need to re-enter the debate. Europe uh, has tried a couple of things because they've had quite aggressive climate policy for some time now. First, they tried freely allocating emissions rights to steel makers, cement makers, and so on, so that most of what they needed to comply, they got for free. That becomes less and less sustainable over time as your emissions goals deepen. And that's why, and I'm a bit of a broken record on this subject, that's why Europe is moving to implement a carbon border adjustment mechanism instead. Now, people talk about CBAMs. This is this is imposing. Our old friend CBAM, yes. Oh, yes. Never far from my thoughts. Uh-huh. Uh, people talk about this sometimes as if the main purpose of a CBAM is to whack countries that are uh, lagging in the emissions reductions or the policy that they should do. But the, the main reason for it is to solve this carbon leakage problem and create conditions where within Europe, businesses can make the very substantial investments that they need to in order to decarbonise their production and be confident that they will make that money back as long as they are on the ball and commercially savvy. Uh, So Europe is going down this this CBAM path where imports of relevant products will face the same carbon price that European producers do. 
And uh, at the time that we're recording, Australia is uh, just days away from launching its own review of these issues and whether we should do the same thing. So a carbon leakage review is going to run for 12 to 18 months. Uh, it's got a, a few million dollars uh, to, um, to run a, a decent review. They are looking at any and all long-term solutions to carbon leakage, but the only one that they've explicitly named as definitely going to be considered is a carbon border adjustment mechanism for Australia. And I'm not sure if there are any other viable effective long-term options, but I'll be very interested to see if any come out of the woodwork. If I remember correctly, last time we talked about this, um, the, the CBM excluded hard-to-abate industries. Is that right? Or? No, so um, the EU CBAM starts with a relatively narrow scope. Uh, so there's a reporting version of it that will come in later this year. The financial obligations under it won't start till 2026, 27. Uh, and iron and steel, aluminium, uh, chemicals, especially fertilizer, hydrogen, cement, and electricity will be the, the products covered in the first instance. Uh, scope one emissions, direct emissions from inside the fence line of the facilities that make those products will, will be covered. And they are working out how they are going to cover electricity related emissions and maybe some other embodied emissions. We'll, we'll see about that. But uh, certainly electricity is going to be a big focus. Uh, so that leaves a lot of other activities and products that aren't covered by the EU CBAM, uh, bricks uh, or uh, a whole bunch of uh, plastics and, and other uh, chemicals industry products. Uh, th there's, there's lots of leakage risk products that may ultimately be covered uh, as the EU CBAM expands over time. But it's, they'll never wind up doing an adjustment on everything. They'll never do, I would guess, an adjustment on cars imported to Europe, both because it would be very complicated to try and do, but also because for products with a lot of different inputs, most of which are not emissions intensive, and with a lot of value added, the commercial impact, the competitiveness difference that pricing carbon versus not pricing carbon makes to the final product is very dilute. And at some point, you just won't bother to do an adjustment because it's more trouble than it's worth. Uh, so I think Europe's system will remain focused on those uh, energy and emissions intensive materials where it really, really makes a big competitive difference. And if Australia winds up going down that path, I think we will be focused too. We, we have a different economy, a different mix of imports and exports uh, and domestic production, but uh, similar uh, realities to deal with. Um, carbon leakage, as climate policy gets real, carbon leakage is a, is a real risk. And I should say, it remains a real risk even though global climate action is much broader and deeper today than it was five or 10 or 20 years ago. And, and by that you mean there's, with more countries and more companies uh, becoming carbon free, the carbon leakage is not really the same as it was 15 years ago. Well, that, that's the hope that many people have, uh, but... It sort of becomes a redundant thing if, if everyone ends up being carbon free, well, then the whole, whole tariff is irrelevant. So I think that the carbon leakage issue is going to remain real and CBAMs okay. are going to remain a relevant concept for quite some time to come because we have a messy world. There's not going to be one uh, global uniform carbon price anytime soon. Uh, and there's an underlying cost differential between green steel, for example, and conventional blast furnace, high emission steel made with coking coal. Now that cost premium for green steel is gonna go down over time, but it's gonna remain, as far as we can see, quite significant. 
and policy needs to make the difference uh, if green steel is going to be investable. Uh, so that's carbon prices, that's contracts for difference, that's uh, public supports of one sort or another, uh, and the the risks of a loss of competitiveness through gaps in how uh, economies approach that is, is going to remain real. Uh, so I, I do think that um, the approach of um, a carbon border adjustment mechanism is is going to be something that uh, is as relevant 10 years from now as it is today and probably 20 and 30 years from now as well. That's fascinating. As a, as a teaser for our next episode, perhaps, how far away are we from green steel? So there's uh, small volumes of green steel on the market in Europe right now going into... Uh, products like uh, like trucks uh, that are that are starting to advertise their uh, their clean scope three credentials, but large scale production of green steel. I think we're going to see more of that overseas uh, towards the end of this decade. Uh, in Australia, we've got the problem that the main variety of iron ore uh, that we have, hematite is the bulk of the iron ore produced in Australia, and we don't know how to make green steel with hydrogen from hematite yet. Uh, The work being done overseas is with magnetite, uh, which we also produce some of, um, but uh, we've got some technical challenges to overcome in Australia before we can realise the ultra-mega green iron visions that Roscano and others have. Oh, that's just going to get everyone excited for, for our next episode when we perhaps will go deeper into that and also about the, the gas issue in Victoria. Looking forward to it. Well, we've done well, uh, Tenant, without, uh, without Paul here. You and I have managed to get through without our amigo. Joining us, thank you. That's it for another episode of What on Earth? What a great episode full of crunchy bits about opportunities for businesses. Thank you, Tenet. Paul will be back next month. Uh, And thank you to all of you, our loyal listeners, who provide great feedback every issue, every episode. If you have any feedback or comment on any of the issues we discussed on today's show, or if you have any ideas for the show, just... Uh, let me know. Please send me an email, uh, james.scotland at aigroup.com.au uh, or drop a thought into any of our personal LinkedIn pages. We'd love to hear from you. And just before you go, I want you to let everyone know AI Group now has a new monthly newsletter called Economic Intelligence. It's an online monthly magazine full of insights and analysis of the key economic issues of the month. So if your business could be improved by up-to-date and insightful economic news, head over to AI Group's website and search for Economic Insights or get the monthly newsletter direct to your inbox each month just by asking the AI Group economic team to add you to their email list. Send a request to economics at aigroup.com.au. That's economics at aigroup.com.au. And that's it for today. I'm James Scotland. Thanks for listening. Let's catch up again in one month. Bye for now.